Well, today we uh, take a few minutes to, to talk about the subject of joy, which is fitting with, uh, with celebrations and birthdays. And, and um, before we go there, though, uh, next week we're going to be starting a new sermon series. I just wanted to give you a 30-second heads up about. Uh, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think you're really going to enjoy, and one that I believe will be very applicable to your daily life as we as we consider what does it look like what does it mean to grow in my spiritual maturity and so we're going to spend a couple of weeks unpacking what does that term mean spiritual maturity and then we're going to take uh the weeks following that and unpack some different practical steps and and define a few things for you and and give you some encouragement and uh some practical strategies on how we can not only understand but take intentional steps to grow uh, in our spiritual life and grow into the maturity into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Today, though, before we get there, I invite you to join me in taking a walk through the story of a man who was spiritually mature beyond his years and beyond his experience. We're going to take a walk through the story of a king from the Old Testament who inherited a legacy very different than the one that he chose to live out. Now, this term legacy, I, I think, is a, is a phrase that that we're all familiar with to some degree. We may not use that term a lot or, or phrase it always in this fashion, but all of us to some degree have inherited some things that are passed down to us from our families. Now, these are sometimes like a script that, that your mom and dad or, or whoever may have raised you handed down to you, and, and they somewhat govern and give you instructions on how to live, how to act, and how to relate with one another. They, they can even give you insights into the sort of worldview that you're going to organize your life by. Now, the same script handed down generation after generation creates what we would refer to as a legacy. Now, there's different types of legacies, though. And regardless of what type you come from, you may have inherited a different type of legacy. Some can be very positive, such as a legacy of compassion, uh, a legacy of connectedness, or a legacy of faith, where a father or a grandfather in a family passes on this legacy of faith to children, and it continues on to the children's children. A wonderful, positive legacy. Sometimes we come from different types of families, though, where, where we've actually inherited a negative legacy. Perhaps a legacy of poverty or dysfunction. Sometimes a legacy of abuse even. Where generation after generation there is a family that tends to abuse uh, substances or money or even people. But here's the good news about legacies. And in particular if you may have inherited a negative legacy. Here's the good news about legacies. Is that with each generation that that script is handed to, we have a choice. We have a choice whether we will continue to live out that legacy and pass that on in our generation to the generation beyond us, or we can choose to say, this stops with me. We can choose to say, this negative legacy, I will draw a line in the sand, and it goes no further. That my children's children will not bear the burden that I've had to bear. So if that's the situation that you come from, there's good hope and good news that I think you'll see in this example of the story today. Because starting in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, we read about King Hezekiah who inherited a kingdom with a negative legacy. It was this kingdom which was established long ago by King David and then expanded even further in territory and expanded further in wealth and prosperity under King Solomon. But in recent years, however, the leaders of this particular kingdom had turned their backs on God. They had started to worship idols. 
They had started to look to their own abilities and to things of this world to provide for their needs. And Hezekiah, when he's 25 years old, he becomes the king of Judah. And when he becomes the king of Judah, he inherits a broken pagan land from his father Ahaz. Now the whole region is in shambles at this time. You see, there's two kingdoms at this point, both living contrary to the will of God. There's the northern kingdom, which is controlled by Assyria at this moment, and they've taken many people off as slaves and captives, but, but some still remained in that northern region. And then there's the southern kingdom of Judah, which had been turned into a defeated, struggling, idolatrous land under the rule of Ahaz, who had closed the temple in Jerusalem, and he had turned his back on the Lord to worship idols. And, and he had looked to worldly allegiances to provide his security as opposed to looking to the Lord. And he tended to, to lose these battles. And every time he lost a battle, he thought, well, well, the God of that kingdom must be greater than the one I'm currently worshiping, so I'll start worshiping their God. And so there's this ongoing mixture of different pagan rituals and ceremonies that he starts introducing into his kingdom to the point where he even at one point is willing to sacrifice his own sons with fire. He killed his own sons by sacrificing them to these idols. Now Judah is a land on the verge of extinction. It is a pagan, besieged, fallen region. And the people of this land were starting to look to each other and go, surely we are cursed. And this is what Hezekiah receives as an inheritance. Now if there is ever a graduation gift that you wanted to return, I I think this qualifies. It's like walking outside and expecting to see that shiny new red Corvette convertible. And instead you find this rusted, broken down 1980 Honda Civic that's sitting outside waiting for you. Uh, But Hezekiah is optimistic though. You see, he's optimistic because he knows that there is a blessed legacy as well that is beneath all this rubble. No, not from his father Ahaz, but from his ancestral father of David. Because you see, David's legacy of faithfulness and righteousness and prosperity exists in this land too. And David's blood runs through his veins as well. And so it didn't take him long to grasp the magnitude of this new role that he finds himself in. He had been trained and he had been primed for this day. And so immediately upon taking control of this region, he was convicted of what had to be done. And he called together a meeting of all the priests and of all the Levites... And as they, they came together and assembled, waiting for Hezekiah to make his first announcement, you could you can imagine there was nervous chatter amongst all the crowd. There's a great sense of uncertainty. What does the future hold for us? What is this first proclamation going to be? What are the implications of this for us? This would be kind of like meeting your new boss on the first day that they're going to be in the office or, or being at a presidential inauguration or the swearing-in of a prime minister. There's all of these questions that go on. Would they continue the same policies of the previous leader? Would they bring in new things? These, these priests and Levites would be wondering, would they have to learn a whole new set of rituals and practices and beliefs again? Or, or even worse, is their time done? They just don't know. But as Hezekiah walks out to address all of these people who are assembled, a hush falls over the crowd. And he scans the assembly, locking on eyes with each person who is gathered there. And then he looks at them all and he says this. He says, leaders of Judah, listen to me. 
Prepare yourselves and prepare this temple for dedication to Yahweh. We were wrong to live contrary to his ways. When we closed up his temple and when we started worshiping idols, it was like we slapped him in the face. Clearly he was furious about this. And that's why things have been so horrific and that's why things have only been getting worse. But now as your new king, I'm going to establish a new covenant with Yahweh so that his wrath may turn from us. But all of you have a role to play in this with me as well. Because you, as leaders of Judah, you have all been chosen to serve him alongside me. And so I call upon you this day to join me in creating this new legacy, a legacy that we can establish and pass on to our children and on to our children's children. Is a proclamation he delivers to the religious leaders who are gathered. Now, those who were there were initially unsure how to respond. Most of them had been following the gods of Ahaz for, for a couple decades at this point. But there were some who were there who, who had a recollection of what it was like to worship Yahweh prior to that. And so there was this mixture of confusion and nostalgia. But it soon was replaced with excitement and anticipation. And they set out to work, first by purifying themselves, first by doing the work of purifying themselves, and then they started purifying the temple. And they went inside and they opened those doors and they took out all the altars and the utensils and the tools and the ceremonial items that were used to offer sacrifices to idols. They took all these out and they tossed them into the Kindron Valley. There was enough junk inside the temple that it took them over two weeks. It took them 16 steady days to clear that temple of all this pagan garbage that had built up in there. And then the next day, they knew that they would come back and they would make offerings to God, the God whom they had rejected decades ago. Now the leaders and the king settled in to sleep that night and and there was a sense of anticipation of what would come tomorrow. And I would guess it made sleep difficult, like a child on Christmas Eve, just wondering, what would tomorrow bring? Well, the next day, Hezekiah gathered all the leaders of the city together again, and they went up to the temple. And for the first time in decades, they offered a series of sacrifices, beginning with sin offerings. You see, up to this point, they had acknowledged God's existence again, but they needed to go a step beyond acknowledging that God existed They had to also own up to the fact that they had sinned, that they had wronged God. They needed to repent from these things. And so as accustomed to the tradition of that time, they brought dozens of animals forth. They brought bulls and rams and goats and lambs, and they sacrificed them one by one. Because you see, throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, it's very clear that the penalty for sin is death. But in God's mercy... He has established a means by which we can be forgiven. Uh, A price still needs to be paid. The price isn't wiped out, but the price is transferred to another. And so when it came time for the goats, they are paraded before the leaders of Judah, and the leaders would place their hand on the head of each animal, symbolically admitting their sin, symbolically admitting the sin of each of the people of that nation, symbolically declaring themselves guilty and acknowledging that God's punishment was just, but also seeking his mercy, that the punishment that they earned, the punishment that they were responsible for, that in God's mercy could transfer to another. And as those sacrifices were made, 
Hezekiah and the officials trusted in faith that they had been forgiven. And the guilt and the shame and the wrath was taken away. And instead it was replaced with hope and a growing joy. A growing joy that comes from being in right relationship with the Lord. Now I imagine that those who remembered the old ways possibly had the words of Solomon going through their minds. As he had spoken to them generation earlier when he said this. He said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. And if they will pray and if they will seek my face, and if they will turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive them of their sins. And I will heal their land. You see, God is faithful. And God is faithful and just to forgive when people will call upon him. When people call upon him with repentance in their hearts. Now, after completing these sin offerings, they had this big feeling of excitement was continuing to grow within them. So they, they went to the next step of offerings where they offered burnt offerings, which was symbolic of their expression of devotion and commitment and complete surrender to God. They brought thanksgiving offerings, which was them expressing their yearning for fellowship and another form of rejoicing in the, in the nature of that relationship. And so with hearts that were continually growing more and more full of this joy from their own possessions, they started to bring in thousands of animals. It's estimated they brought so many animals from their own possessions that they would have needed an area the size of the field at Commonwealth Stadium to hold them all. Imagine an area that size full of sheep and goats and bulls. The, the sound would have been deafening and the smell, whew, probably even worse. But Hezekiah had a plan for that too because he drowned out the sound of the animals by stationing Levites all over the temple who were praising God with music, with trumpets and cymbals and harps. They filled that area with the sound of praises to God. And then the smell of these burnt offerings wafted everywhere and began to rise to heaven. And as this was going on, it became contagious throughout the region because Jerusalem was electric. They had decided to hold a Passover feast to keep this going, to keep the celebration going. But there was a problem, though. Nobody outside of Jerusalem knew what was taking place. So invitations needed to go out. We need to invite people to come and join us. But then they pondered, well, who could we invite? And Hezekiah thought to himself, you know who loves a good old-fashioned Passover? Our friends to the north, the Israelites. Now, as we all know, Making friends is not really the easiest thing. And repairing past relationships that have been damaged is even more difficult. And, and a rift had existed between Judah and Israel for decades at this point. So, so what is Hezekiah going to say? Like, like how is he going to go about inviting these people who are essentially enemies to come join them? You know, if he had Facebook, he could have just created an event. He, he could have sent out a friend request. That would have been safer. But obviously that's not an option for him at that point. So he sends out couriers. He sends couriers throughout the whole region. We're told that he sends couriers from Beersheba to Dan. That's like from Lethbridge to high level throughout the whole region. He sends these couriers holding a message, calling people to come back. And the message they carried was to come back and return to the God of their forefathers and to stop living these wicked, unfaithful ways. He invited them to come, to come to the sanctuary of the Lord and to join them in worshiping God and to see if God's wrath would turn from wrath to compassion. 
Now, as these invitations went out, some people rejected the friend request that he had sent. It was met only with scorn and ridicule. But many, many people accepted it. And they started flooding into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover together for the first time in decades. And so as Jerusalem is filling up, these, these leaders began to prepare themselves for the great festival that was coming. And again, with, with instruments and singing and feasting and ever-increasing joy, the celebration began and lasted for seven whole days. Day and night for seven days, for a whole week, they continued celebrating and rejoicing and praising God. Now, the people of Israel got so caught up in the excitement and the exuberance that when that seven days was over and it was time for them to go home, they didn't leave. They decided to keep it going for a whole second week. There was so much excitement going on. And the Chronicle at the time tells us this. He says, There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon there had been nothing like this. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them. For their prayers reached to heaven, his holy dwelling place. Well, the time finally came for the people to go back to their own towns. But even though the party in Jerusalem ended, the celebration did not truly end. Because as they journeyed back to their homes throughout Judah and throughout Israel, along the way, they smashed every pagan altar. And they smashed every idol as they continued to purify that land. Starting in Jerusalem, and then branching out in all directions, the people of God had returned. The relationship was reestablished. Their hearts were filling with joy. And God began to purify not just that place, but that whole region. And the message of God's forgiveness went to every town, resulting in a steady increase of joy. You see, in just a few weeks, Hezekiah had taken a broken, troubled, terminally ill kingdom and turned it completely on its head. The temple was open again. The people had returned to God. And a revival, a true, genuine revival was going out through the whole land. Now things had started to calm down, but as Hezekiah walked the streets of Jerusalem in the aftermath of this, I imagine he was totally speechless at what had just taken place. There there were still some pockets of festivity going on, and the streets were just littered with the aftermath of the party. But he knew he had started something important something that was beyond his wildest imagination. And here he was at this moment where it felt like it was ending. But this couldn't be the end. And he had to take action. He just felt this overwhelming conviction to take action, to say this can't be the end. This can't be how it finishes. We have to keep the momentum going somewhere. This can't be the exception to the rule. This needs to become the new norm. This needs to become the start of the new legacy that we pass on. And so he digs deep into his own pockets. And he supplies from his own resources what was needed to keep the offerings going and the worship going at the temple. Now, Hezekiah was the king. He could have covered the whole cost for a long time. But, but he knew this as well. He knew it wasn't about him. It wasn't about him as the king or as the wealthiest man in the realm. He knew it was about people returning to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew it was about worshiping God and praising him for the blessings that God had poured out to them. He knew it was about being united and knowing that they belonged to something that was bigger than themselves, something that was significant, something that was of God. 
And so not only does he provide from his own resources, but he sends out an order to all of the people. It's time to start tithing. So how'd they respond to that? Oh, here it comes. We had a party, and now here comes the bill. That wasn't how they responded, though. You see, because they, they, they caught on. They understood what had been taking place. They didn't see the call to tithe as a tax. They didn't see it as you got to pay to play. They didn't see it that way. They saw it as a privilege. They came to see it as an opportunity to joyfully give to a cause. They saw it as an opportunity to worship God with what he had so richly blessed them with to give back in a form of worship. And with this newfound love and this commitment that needed to express itself or it would burst, they gave with incredible generosity. Not out of obligation, out of lives that were completely surrendered to God. Out of lives that were just jazzed up about being united with God. Lives that wanted to support his cause and his ministry throughout this region. But giving to a cause so that other people could experience what they were having in their own hearts. And so for four months, piles, literally piles, and herds and flocks poured into the city. We're told that everywhere you look, there was makeshift corrals full of sheep and goats. That there was piles of grain baking in the sun. That there were jugs stacked three, four, five high full of oil and wine and honey. And the already crowded streets were starting to become impassable because of how much was being generously offered. And it was clear something had to be done because they're on the verge of a crisis. Imagine, you're in a city on the verge of a crisis because of people's generosity. How awesome is that? Do you believe that could happen again today? (laughs) How awesome would that be? And so Hezekiah ordered the building of storehouses. And immediately he said, we got to distribute this to the people who are in need. And so they, they built storehouses to keep it, keep it all contained. And then they distributed it to those who were in need. And, and after all had received, after everybody had been blessed abundantly, God had provided more than enough for all the people and to keep the sacrifices and the worship going. Hezekiah, in everything he did throughout the land, was good and right in the eyes of the Lord. And he and his region prospered because they returned to God. I think this is an incredible story. It's just an incredible journey of a nation that was once on the verge of extinction, feeling like they were cursed, that they would go from there to repenting from their evil ways and to entering into a genuine relationship with the one true God. And now, on that side of it, we're experiencing joy beyond belief. So much so, that it had to be expressed in some way. And that expression led them to give just unprecedented acts of generosity. And I love this story because it shows the difference that God can make in the life of a person who is fully focused and devoted to him. You see, a life surrendered to God is characterized by these two things. A life that is surrendered to God is characterized by joy, and expressions of generosity. That's what we witness in this story. The story of a people who gave their lives back to God. They caught a glimpse of his love. They had an experience with his forgiveness. And they became overwhelmed to the point where they had to express it. And I think that's an example of what our Christian lives should look like as we live them among the world. 
But if we're honest, how often does our life look like that? I I know mine doesn't. I believe with all my heart that it should, but I know that quite often it doesn't. How about you? How is your joy factor? It's called a joy factor. How is your joy factor? On a scale of 1 to 10. You know, at 1, the only way it looks like you're smiling is if you stand on your head. Right? And then at 10, people just can't stand to be around you because you're so happy. Right? Like, in the middle there, where do we fall? You know, at times we go through seasons where we have more joy. At times we might say we're an 8 or a 9. I'm a, I don't know. Maybe we've been 10s. But we know there's also times when we're disheartened, that there's times when we're sorrowful, that, that we're much lower on that scale. There's seasons in my life where I wrestle with this as well. Especially when life comes crashing down around us, when it feels like that, that tidal wave of situations is welling up, we can see it coming, it's going to steal my joy, it's going to wash it away when it crashes. But author and theologian Henry Nguyen, in, in a wonderful book called In the Name of Jesus, talks extensively about how there's a world around us that is lonely. A world that is in despair and has been rejected. A world that has an incredible need. And that need is to know the heart of God. Is to know the heart of God that forgives. That God cares and reaches out. That God loves beyond any love you've ever experienced. And that God's heart wants to restore and it wants to heal. Now, if we have this joy, if we're going to have this joy to the point where it is unshakable, where it is steadfast and enduring, then we need to consider in all seasons what we're looking to as the source of our joy. Sometimes we look to material things. I think, I think we're all equally guilty of this. I know myself, I am as well. As we look to the things of this world to provide for our contentment and for our fulfillment. If I just have enough money, if I, if I have enough friends, if, if I have stable employment where I feel secure, then I'll be more resilient. And we can understand the logic behind that. Or we have a tendency to look towards people. You know, if, if my parents would just get along and not fight so much, if my teachers understood me, if, if my spouse would just relate to me more, if, if I had more friends, we can understand that. We have good intentions when we think those sorts of things. And and we're looking to good people. I I believe the best in people. But the problem with both of these is that equally they're finite. They're limited. and, And they're fragile. And often they're just as broken as we are. And so it's not that we're looking to evil things. But we're looking to something finite that that we're placing a burden upon. It was never meant to bear. It was never meant to hold that burden. And so when those things fail, because we placed a burden upon them they were never meant to hold, it leaves us doubtful. It can leave us frustrated and angry, even resentful. And if we do that long enough, looking to things and the people of this world to provide our source of joy, if we do that long enough, we become like the people of Judah going, I must be cursed. Because I can't find sustaining joy. But here's God's desire. God's desire is that we would look to him as our source of joy. That we would not look to people or the things of this world or to our own good works to provide. That we would look to him. Because he is the only one who has ever promised. He is the only one who has ever said that he can sustain it. He is the one that Nehemiah says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. 
the one upon which we can stand steadfast and fixed. So that the waves of life come crashing upon us during those low seasons, or if we're on a mountaintop experience with God, wherever we are on that joy factor between 1 and 10, regardless of where we are, we're always creeping ever higher because our source is in God, not in the things that are fleeting of this world. And God wants to be there with you. He wants to share with you in all seasons of life, whether we are praising or whether we are lamenting. God desires to have that relationship with you so much that he sent his one and only son to establish the means by which we could have that relationship and by which we can make this all possible. And so please don't miss this because this is the source of the joy. The source of the joy is found in Jesus Christ who died upon the cross for our sins so that we could place our hands upon him and have that guilt of our sin, the penalty of our sin transferred to him that it will be restored back to relationship with God. That we would be free from the sin, free from the guilt and the shame and that separation that we could once again return to God. That is the source of the joy that we need to be seeking. That the God of this universe who created all that is in it, that this God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, the eternal, holy, the God beyond all comprehension, the one who set creation in motion, the one whom no one can stand against, the one before whom every knee will one day bow. This God loves you knew you before you were born, counted the very hairs upon your head this morning. He has ordered your steps. He knows your fears and your struggles. He knows your hopes and your dreams. And he stands with you when you stand with him. And if we can even just grasp an inkling of this, how could we not start to feel that joy? Start building in our hearts. And it starts to percolate from within us and overwhelm to the point where it sustains us through difficult seasons and transforms us in all. I've personally experienced this, and people catch this joy in all sort of seasons of life. When people have caught this, I have seen marriages rebound when they found hope and new perspective, when they understand God's plan for marriage, when they understand and have a new appreciation for their spouse and how God has created and blessed them. I have seen people who are stuck in drugs and alcohol addiction find freedom from the fear and from the isolation that they put themselves in, be released from the pain that they are trying to mask, and instead it was replaced with freedom and with hope. And as well, I have seen people who just, who just generously give of their time and, and their money and possessions and talents, and people around them go, that guy must be loaded. That guy must have a ton of time on his hands. That guy sure is more talented than I am. But, but no, that's not what it was about. It was about a fact that they caught the joy of the Lord and it needed expression. And they looked at what they had and they turned it to him as an act of worship and gave generously of what they had. The joy of the Lord is our strength. I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up as I close here this morning. You see, God wants to do great things in your life. He wants to do great things in your home, in our community, in our church, and I believe throughout this city, throughout this region. If you have never heard or accepted God's forgiveness before, I invite you to come speak with myself, with Pastor Luke following the service, but not to let this moment pass. If you're sensing that you've never tapped into the source of joy that I'm talking about, it can be yours today through Jesus Christ if you will claim God's love for yourself and start experiencing that joy now. Perhaps you have accepted that in the past. 
but today you feel like you've, you've lost your joy. You're thinking, where did I put that joy? If that's where you find yourself, I invite you to, again, look to your first love. Realizing that, that what's possibly keeping you from experiencing that joy is guilt or fear, anger, or it could be a sense of control. But to look again back to your first love, who should be Jesus Christ. You see, these things that keep us from experiencing that joy are not the things of God, that they are the lies of the enemy. And they will keep you from having that freedom in the Lord. So I invite you today to receive it again. To live it out with eyes fixed upon the Lord. And watch what he can do in your life, in this church, and throughout this region. That we may all come to realize the joy of a life that is surrendered to the Lord.